Oh, what's up? Long time no talk, man. How's it going? Long, long time no talk. Have we started? Is this is this the start? It's live, but let's definitely make small talk. All right, small small talk for a start later. Uh, okay. Yes. Thank you for thank you for managing the uh, the hosting of this. Uh, New York was absolutely fantastic. Um, probably one of the best crypto trips I've ever ever gone on. Um, and I didn't actually go to a single NFT NYC event at all. I was just like hanging out with with the homies at the peripheral events. Nice. So there was a conference that I was uh, unaware. Yeah. So there was the NFT NYC conference, which is apparently a thing. A conference that has happened before, but this was the first I heard of it. Uh, and then through like the grapevine, this is totally a totally unconfirmed take. But one of the reasons why this particular NFT NYC conference was so massive was because apparently at Bitcoin uh, 2021, people were talking like, "Oh, this this conference is great. I love conferences. I want to go to all the conferences. What conference are you going to next?" And then apparently enough people said the answer to that question was NFT NYC. So people would be going like, oh, and they would just pass it along. They would go, oh, are you going to NFT NYC? Are you going to NFT NYC? And apparently, like, it kind of got started there as, like, the meme of the next big crypto conference that people were going to go to. Uh, and so it just absolutely, like, blew the fuck up. Uh, and, like, just, like, ten times more people uh, uh, went, to, went to the actual conference. How many people con- went? Or, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, but I mean, the, the whole thing just got kept on scaling up and up and up. And then there were a hell of people like me that went anyways, without actually intending on going to the conference itself. Cool. You buy anything? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, actually I did. I, I, uh, the last, uh, Friday I was there, uh, I went to an NFT an in real life NFT show. Uh, and I met this, uh, met this guy who had some art there. And I, I was just walking around all the, a lot of the, the, it was like projectors and, and LED displays up on a wall. Uh, so each kind of piece of art was displayed differently. Um, and there was on this big, big uh, LED screen uh, TV, basically, I guess, uh, there was this it's like almost like 30 minutes of footage that this guy had taken using a drone. And then he would take that footage and put it through like this AI uh, like uh, this algorithm basically to take the footage and like make it like neater. And it just made it very look, very surreal, very like watercolor like, but under the process of like an algorithm. Right. So it was like one, one part drone footage, one part like watercolor like algorithm. Uh, and he had a series of, of eight of them. And that's why they watched. That's why there was like almost 30 minutes of footage. Um, and I bought all of them, I bought every single one. Uh, and so we were actually just going through the minting process today uh, with this uh, team called Manifold. Um, and the cool thing about Manifold is that you actually don't have to trust them about the minting process. They put the contracts on Ethereum and then they put the data on Arweave. And so it's like a, it's like a stateless NFT minting platform. Uh, and so we just, uh, so it's the whole action, the whole process of learning how to actually like mint, mint something that you really, really care about rather than buying some like stupid, stupid JPEG on OpenSea and actually like giving a fuck about the art. Uh, and like learning how to actually like manage with the process of the whole thing is actually was a really interesting process. So nice learning moment. The, the, it's always so interesting seeing how quickly the fads in Ethereum go. Um, you know, first it's like, uh, art like Beeble and then it's like 
stuff where it's like an algorithm that prints something and puts it on OpenSea, and now that's mm-hmm. just like stupid stuff, and now you need to buy real art and then mint it. Like, uh, are these? I would like, not call that like a fad. No, I would not call or... that a fad. That's that's not I mean, a fad I think, at all. I think I feel like the the NFT thing. Like, I get why you know unique hashes on the blockchain could be a useful thing, but I think the the whole bu- I think it's a pretty big bubble right now. Yes, it's very, very, it's very priced in. I would say that. Uh, fad implies that this that, that it's not an innovation. Fad implies that we didn't discover something, and that is, in my mind, that is fundamentally wrong. Uh, I will grant that, like, yeah, there are this like there's this movement of capital and attention from like use case to use case. Like, first it was profile picture NFTs, then it went to like generative art NFTs. And now it's going to like maybe one of one NFTs, but I actually wouldn't even contend that it's even doing that because all the all the profile punk or uh, crypto punk cool cats, all the profile picture NFTs have like held their weight in in either terms of price. And then a lot of artists have recently just got a lot of revenue making one of one art NFTs, and art blocks are still continuing to do well. Like I wouldn't call it a, a fad at all. We're just kind of like figuring out all of these use cases. And yeah, the attention is like rotating at a very rapid pace, but like the, so far the, the economic sustainability is, is definitely there. Whether that holds out for a long, the long term is another story. Um, but for now, like a lot of creativity is happening. Man, you throw around the word uh, economic sustainability pretty lightly. Well, you don't use it enough. All right, what do we got on the agenda? We, uh, I think we warmed up the room a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. So it, it's, it's been a long time since we've talked, and I actually kind of think that that's emblematic of this bull market at large. Uh, yeah, one last of the, time we what, talked was like June. Yeah. So and, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a minute. Holy shit. Um, and like it was back in the bear market, the 2018 to 2020 bear market, Bitcoin, it was basically just Bitcoiners and Ethereans. And that was about it. And that's like when POP crypto like was at its, what that was at its peak, right? Um, and th- th- I think there was a reason for that. And as soon as this bull market started, like these communities started growing and they started growing enough to the point where they started like diverging. And like s- the Venn diagram overlap between Bitcoiners and Ethereum actually started to get like uh, as a percentage smaller. That's that's my interpretation of of the events of the last like year or so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's an absolute divergence between the crypto industry and the Bitcoin industry, and you're like seeing like the Bitcoin only industry, and obviously crypto has been doing like the the Ethereum uh, native industry has been its own thing for a while. So, I mean, I think that that's definitely a fact. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so back in 2018, 2019, the crypto industry was just Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then now Bitcoin has like kind of, it's definitely like hitting its, it's really, really, I would say siloed away from the rest of crypto because it's optimized in this very, very one specific way. Um, where on the very, very far ends, other ends of the spectrum, we have like these chains like Solana that are picking up that are super duper execution optimized, but not at all economically optimized. And then we have Ethereum that's in the middle, where it's like also fighting the fight of being uh, economically sustainable, but like Bitcoin, but also being 
a financial system like like um, a smart contract system would be based upon. And the the argument that Ethereum people would make is that well, because you are actually doing both, you actually get tailwinds on both sides. Um, but that's a that's a long conversation. Yeah, or you you get you get neither benefit because you introduce a political process into into how these things work. Mm, well, no. So what I was talking about was more of a technical implement, implementation of the protocol itself, whereas I think what you're talking about is just like the nature of Ethereum governance. Sure. I mean, like, I don't know if I agree that Bitcoin's siloed. I think the Bitcoin industry and the Bitcoin only community is like trying to differentiate and be its own thing and uh, kind of stand on its own. Like, you know, Coin Center was the only advocacy group. Now there's like this push for many advocacy groups, including many Bitcoin only advocacy groups. You know, we're seeing like many Bitcoin only publications. We're seeing, uh, you know, this just this emergence of a thriving Bitcoin only industry. And I don't think that like that is like separate from crypto, but it is differentiating Bitcoin from crypto by creating a Bitcoin only industry. Um, I mean, I think Bitcoin is huge in all of these apps. What's one of the Bitcoin is the sound money app. It's the Bitcoin app. You know, all of these like layers or chains can plug Bitcoin in. So, um, I mean, what's the, one of the first things that they put in is some sort of wrap BTC in whatever way is most convenient. <laughs> no, okay. So from what I've gathered in the last like, year of Ethereum is like on Ethereum, no one gives a fuck about WBTC on Ethereum. It's like the least interesting asset. And if you want Bitcoin to be sound money, like you, you know that when it's on Ethereum, it loses all the sound money properties during because if you want to transfer it over, you have to trust somebody to actually do that. And, and I, what's the merit of a Bitcoin only blank, like Bitcoin only fund, Bitcoin only uh, uh, like a lobbying groups? Like that's just why is that a good thing? Like, why aren't you more inclusive? And, and like, obviously, Bitcoiners have always been very exclusive, as in it's like a Bitcoin only culture. But it, it seems like the, the biggest criticism of Bitcoin that I've had lately is like when it comes to Bitcoiners advocating for what they believe in, is they want to advocate for Bitcoin and then they want to like slam the door shut behind them along the way. Like what, what's, what's the value of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree in you in the fact that I think that some Bitcoiners are very close minded to what is good for Bitcoin. I subscribe to uh, the school of thought that everything is good for Bitcoin, including shitcoin chains um, and other crypto infrastructure. Um, but with that being said, like, I think that a lot of things that like coin coin center does a lot of good work in my opinion. But with that being said, like they have to advocate for a lot of things that have nothing to do with Bitcoin and they have to like, blanket all crypto together and ask for like for example like they deal with a lot of like security regulations around tokens like you know that really has very little to do with like making sure that bitcoin mining and holding bitcoin and running a bitcoin node is something that citizens in different countries can do reliably like that i feel like those things are are very different things to advocate for and uh it's pretty clean to you know advocate for bitcoin bitcoin is a very is like fairly launched it's clearly not a security it's a commodity it's decentralized like it's free it's free of speech it's freedom of speech 
So like, I think it's clean to, to advocate for Bitcoin. Once you start adding in everything else, it gets a lot less clean. So just even from an advocacy perspective, I think uh, it's beneficial just for Bitcoin. But this is just a complete subjective argument as to like, oh, I think that this thing is good. Therefore, I want the lobbying groups to advocate for this thing and this thing alone. And there's other things that aren't as good as this thing. And any resources that are spent advocating for like some NFT thing, which I deem a shitcoin, is therefore bad. Like that's just a, a subjective argument that you're like trying to will upon the people that are doing the advocating. And on, on the other side of things, coin desk and other people can advocate for whatever they want. I just like I yeah, but you're talking about your desires, for Bitcoin yeah. specifically, and like Bitcoiners are are making that happen. Yeah, right. Bitcoiners are are making that happen. They're like ascribing to this model where like we're only we only give our attention and energy onto onto one thing, and the the fact that they believe that is is the. the it's also it's just so frustrating when like there's there's all these tokens on Ethereum, and by the very nature of the Ethereum protocol, whenever more tokens are created, whenever more block space is consumed, that actually has downstream impacts upon the monetary asset that is the thing that secures the network, which is Ether. So whenever someone makes a single transaction on Ethereum, it makes Ether a more sound money. And now that is the soundness of the economics. We can go into the debate about the soundness of like whether people can actually tinker with that via uh, protocol upgrades. But it does have downstream soundness of the economics of Ether. And so if you are talking about, look, I want Bitcoiners to advocate for sound money and sound money alone, Again, it's just a subjective argument as to whether you what you believe is to actually be sound money. And it's really just another form of gate, gatekeeping, which is a lot of artists are minting these NFTs as, a, as a, an expression of their speech. Artists, like art is speech. And artists, especially digital artists, now have these NFT things to communicate what they want to express to the world. And so all these uh, Bitcoin advocates that, again, like if you're, if you give a fuck about Bitcoin and that's the only thing you give a fuck about, like, sure, that's also speech. You're allowed to do that. But just like, like drawing the line and saying like, I don't want, I'm not willing to share resources with other people that are in my same industry. And like, regardless of whether you think that this is a Bitcoin industry and then a separate cryptocurrency industry, it's not like that. It's all the same. Uh, That's how people view us. It's just, it's just, in me, it's just another form of like bag bias where like people are in my Twitter comments and be like, oh, what about my coin that like I believe in? It's the same thing. I mean, I think it's pretty unfair to call it bag bias. Like, I think people are allowed to advocate for what they care about. And like, you know, advocating for Bitcoin, I care about that a lot. I uh, definitely would push back on, you know, you five bifurcating like the definition of sound money between like something that is like theoretically deflationary versus sound as in it's like uncorruptible and 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 like a a perfect monetary policy so i feel like uh perfect is also subjective i think uh i think a fixed monetary policy is the perfect monetary policy for communicating uh for communicating value in the most scalable way possible um, because it removes a monetary uncertainty and it allows us to uh, move forward as a society. So, I mean, that is my mental model for how Bitcoin uh, helps humanity evolve. Um, what you're describing to me sounds more of like 
uh, a way to make number go up in fiat terms. Yeah, so I will agree that Bitcoin has this uh, has this great niche as to a monetary policy, as in a hard cap. That's a fantastic, just like there's a there's a lot of value to be captured there. It is not it is not like pristine. It is not the uh, niche to cover. It is not like this immaculate thing that is true. It's it's a really really good one, uh, and. Where you where you contrast that with like oh yeah with Ethereum this whole like burning of the transaction fees all this stuff it's all about like the pumpamentals and the number go up uh, yeah sh- I mean sure I, I would frame it in a different terms I would frame it as security goes up and the number one thing that the Ethereum network is interested in is securing itself and then we all know that the value of the underlying asset the more that it is higher. The more secure the Ethereum, or the more the more secure the, the blockchain is, or whatever blockchain that it is. Like Bitcoiners know this, and so it's it may be if you want to frame it negatively, you can say like, oh yeah, fundamentals, like dollar value go up. I'm saying everything that is built on Ethereum it becomes more secure the more things that are built on it, and this is a security and economic sustainability flywheel. In my in my idea, is a beautiful model. I mean, the thing is, is that all of those things are also true for Bitcoin in terms of uh, the system gets more valuable as more people use it, as it's uh, as it is integrated into the world more. Yeah, that's definitely true. And that's true because Bitcoin is, you know, more people use the money, money begets money, liquidity begets liquidity. And that is also true for Ethereum. Same thing with the Ether. All the, th- all the same reasons of what you just said about Bitcoin are also true for Ether, the asset on the Ethereum blockchain. And Ether also has all the tailwinds of utility of people using Ether for non-monetary use cases. So not only does Ether get the monetary use cases, uh, the pure monetary use cases, but also gets the, it gets latched onto the utility of the Ethereum blockchain. Yeah. What Bitcoin doesn't do is it doesn't connect the value of the asset to the value of the block space. And so Bitcoin block space can be very, very cheap, while one Bitcoin can be very, very expensive. And that's an insecure blockchain. Whereas Ethereum, the utility of the block space, the reason why people are purchasing that block space, the NFT, because people want to speculate on NFTs, whatever, like the value of the block space actually does become formally instantiated in the value of the Ether, the asset. So, uh, I mean, honestly, I don't know enough about Ethereum block uh, game theory at least the most up-to-date game theory um to comment on like how it captures the value of the block space but i have a very simple explanation for why the block space is expensive and that is because the cantillon effect is very lucrative so if you have a very lucrative thing then your block space is gonna you know be i think unnaturally high so, I mean, I don't know how long the Cantillon effect is going to continue to be relevant. It's probably going to be our entire lifetime, which would bode well for things that enable the, the Cantillon effect and Cantillon insiders to take advantage of that. So that's what Ethereum does right now. And I think in terms of Bitcoin, I think that uh, you and many people that on the Ethereum side have very, very little understanding of the actual economics and game theory of Bitcoin. Uh, I think if you subscribe to anything that Justin Drake says, then you actually don't understand what, how Bitcoin works, how mining works, how the incentives work. We haven't even gotten into the news, but we can talk about China and what happened there and um, how that pretty much um, invalidates 
uh, every aspect of what a lot of Ethereum Bitcoin bears say about how Bitcoin's security works. Well, so to speak for Justin Drake, Justin Drake would just respond to you and say, well, you don't actually understand. And I think he would also say... What do I not understand? That Ethereum or Bitcoin? Because I, I, I admit I don't really understand B- Bitcoin. Big, okay. Bitcoin. Okay. Uh, and then also when like the, the hash rate of Bitcoin goes down by 50% and then goes back up and recovers due to the local temporal time of like, what, nine, six months, it's actually 50% is nothing in comparison to the long-term uh, uh, algorithmic depreciation of the Bitcoin subsidy, which halves itself every four years. So it halves itself in like going down 50% is not the same thing as approaching zero. Those are two very, very different numbers. And to address the, the concern of like uh, the Cantillon effect, where like apparently some central ether like stakeholders are earning all the value of the, the on-chain economics. One of the reasons why having a financial layer built on of your, your chain is so important and also one of the reasons how, of how we can spread all of this wealth is when something, some tokens get birthed on Ethereum, like that is not connected to Ether, the asset, except for the gas fees that was needed to be paid. And so when some token like Chainlink goes from zero to a bajillion dollars or some artist like mint some high value NFTs, it takes one transaction fee and then the complete rest of the value of the tokens are completely separate from Ether holders. And so what Ethereum allows uh, people to do is we have an asset money printer. We, we have, it, we have the, the printing press that we, that it, of assets. And that printing press, just like in, in the Renaissance, one of the reasons why the Renaissance happened was we created the printing press and ideas were able to pr- proliferate. And that created the information networks of the 1400s that allowed ideas and freedom to spread throughout the Renaissance. Then we came up with the internet and the same thing happened with in freedom of information. And now with uh, uh, blockchains, we have not just a printing press of information, but an, a printing press of assets that allows anyone to create their own assets in ways that, that they can find ways to ascribe value to it. And so it, it actually completely decentralizes the central money printer and pushes it towards the margins and allows wealth creation to be at the margins. That has nothing to do with any sort of like central body of like Ethereum people that control the whole entire network, except for the one connection of the gas fee, which again, I do understand is high, but that is what it costs to maintain a highly valuable network that allows for this wealth creation events to be happening at the margins. At well, the, the gas fee is high is because it, it pays to pay the gas fee if you are an insider. It pays to pay the gas fee, period, like full stop. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of analysis that shows that it's like pretty much big funds that are using the blockchain at this point. Um, but um, beyond that, I, I would like to... Well, the big funds are, are doing all the activity on OpenSea? I mean, dude, I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of speculators who, again, are taking advantage of, uh, of what's happening on Ethereum, both the printing and uh, the speculating on it during a bull market. So um, that's great. Like, I'm not even contending with anything that you just said, really. Like, I, I agree that, you know, Ethereum does all these things and all these things are possible now. Really, you know, my contention with Ethereans is that not that they are wrong about Ethereum. I, they're probably right about Ethereum. They know You know more about Ethereum than me. I think that's like a pretty obvious. Like, I'll, I won't admit that. But my, my contention is that you're actually 
extremely wrong about Bitcoin. And because you're extremely wrong about Bitcoin, you're missing out on a very big part of what's going to be happening in the future. And what is going to be happening in the future in terms of like what Bitcoin means to value being stored in random assets, I think that's like long term, very bearish. Um, because I, I don't think that that really uh, com- computes with having a pure store of value in a pure uh, monetary system that, you know, I, I, I'm bearish on assets holding value. I think assets are going to be reduced to their utility value. Um, hold on. Um, okay, so you, you said that there's uh, these users of Ethereum that are at the whims of these like big funds or big money people like doing all this speculation on the NFTs. And that's partly why maybe the OpenSea volume is so high. I'm just uh, saying it pays to be a whale on Ethereum and it pays right. to be an insider and a tastemaker. And that's why, like, obviously you can arb the fees. Uh, so, and, and, and you, you said about speculation, right? Like, it was about speculation on the art. Like, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying them. that yeah. that's what yeah. it is. Yeah, and, like, this is one of the biggest arguments about why Bitcoiners have always uh, justified, like, the volatility in BTC, right? Like, what if we're at the genesis of a very large like wealth creation event that is going to just like shatter the world when it comes to what it means to have arts and culture, there is speculation that comes along with that. Like people know that there's wealth to be made. And so a lot of this speculation actually ends up in the hands of the artists that are making these like NFTs or like whatever, like whatever tokens are being made these days. There's nothing wrong uh, with that. And That's it's, great. Right. It's, a, it's, this it's is, beautiful. This is part of the fundamentals. Wonderful. Like, Right. And so, like, this speculation by funds actually is what is funding all of this, like, cultural creation, cultural, uh, like, artistic expression. I think that's a pretty fiat idea, and it doesn't really compute with a sound money money world. So that's what I'm saying is, like, you are right, but, you Mm -hmm. like, I think you are just underestimating Bitcoin and then what Bitcoin does to the paradigm. Yeah. The thing is, like... The cool thing about Ethereum being aligned with like utility and having things that are able to happen on Ethereum is that we actually, as Ethereum people, get to point at all the things that we like have as evidence. So it's like, oh, this is like why Ethereum is doing the things that we're saying that it's going to do. Whereas I've just been hearing like the same chants about Bitcoin over and over and over again. We're like, oh, you don't get the theory of sound money. You don't get like the, the properties about Bitcoin. You don't get Bitcoin. And like, I think I actually get Bitcoin. Like we've done this, uh, we've done this podcast for for years. I've talked to many, many Bitcoins. I Bitcoiners. I think I understand Bitcoin pretty damn well. And Bitcoiners, unfortunately, are plagued with this problem where they only have this like narrative and thesis of just like these problems. Like proof of work is valuable, and that's the narrative. And like miners selling their coins, that's good for distribution. It's good for legitimacy. That's the narrative. But unfortunately, because Bitcoin has like consolidated all of its technical capabilities to only focusing on BTC, the asset, there is actually no evidence to support anything that is about the thesis of Bitcoin. There's only these other Bitcoiners that are chanting the same chant so over and over and you, over again. And that's why the whole industry you, thinks you guys are a cult. Can we tease that out a little bit more? Uh, how, how, sure. I mean, we've gone in, in what, since 2009 till now. So that's 12 years We've gone from no price to household name and a currency in a sovereign country. So, I mean, like, at what, I mean, like, 
What's your definition here? My definition of what? Of, of not living up to, you know, some sort of, like, success. Right, because I actually don't think that you can, like, parse away a lot of Bitcoin or success from the rest of the ecosystem. So, like, Bitcoin, Bitcoin gets its own tailwinds. And, and you, you say this. You're like, oh, yeah, all shit coins are, are, are good for Bitcoin. And, yes, like, Bitcoin is the first. And the first thing, the first proof of concept to ever rise upon the world is going to be extremely valuable because that's kind of the whole point of the thing. If Bitcoin wasn't valuable, then the whole rest of the industry also wouldn't work. But going back to the whole concept about Bitcoin with this like decreasing security, Bitcoin is like perfectly positioned well, Bitcoin is not to decreasing only work. security other than in narrative. Well, you're just please, spinning the please, opposite. Please show, please show me on the chart where it's decreasing. The, the, we call it the happening. Yeah, and when you look at all other metrics that relate to the having, it makes them go up. Okay, but when you approach zero, like you're so going to when, zero, when your, it's where you're when, going. When, when is Bitcoin going to get to the point where you're concerned? My guess is like three-ish happenings from now. When you get so close to zero that, like, you actually aren't that far away. And, like, it doesn't take, like, every single block to be, like, below zero in terms of security. But it just takes a few blocks every now and then to start really So what, what does the, that the world concept look like of security. to you? So we're talking about three-ish halvings from now. So that's, like, 11 mm-hmm. years from now. So that's uh, 2032. Like, wh- where does Bitcoin exist in that society, right? Is it relevant? Yeah, no, it's, it's perhaps it's extremely relevant, but it like I think what you're asking is trying to compare the size of Bitcoin to the size of society, and that has always been like I think our fundamental like dis- like we can't we always talk past it about each other with this because it's not about how big Bitcoin is in relation to the objects around it that can attack it. It's how big it is to itself, and so if it costs very little in Bitcoin terms to reorg a day's worth of blocks, then somebody with a lot of Bitcoins can That's do that. That's not true. Bitcoin is not proof of stake, okay? Bitcoin is proof of work, so you actually have to own the infrastructure. Or no, if you can rent the infrastructure by ma- making a significant minor subsidy by just paying people. I mean, that is someone who is just like acting completely out of game theory. So like, it just makes absolutely no sense. And again, at what point, right? So, like, my name right now, 37 sets, that is the block reward mm-hmm. in 100 years, okay? So, like, when you're talking about when is Bitcoin going to break, okay, so in 100 years, 37 sets per block reward is going to be a fucking steal. It's going to be an enormous amount of money that people are going to try to arb energy to get, okay? And it is, there's going to be some of the biggest, most valuable companies in the entire world are going to be doing everything they possibly can do to innovate to get those 37 sats, okay? So that is where I think this is going to go. So in terms of, like, what percentage of all human activities on Bitcoin right now? Probably less than 1%. So what happens when we get to, like, 100%, okay? Like, we're, we're not talking about fees, but, like, we're talking about appreciation of finite Bitcoin in the block award. Now stack the fees on top. So, like, I feel like, you're not thinking in exponentials whatsoever, and uh, you're living in this world where you're like, uh, well, it's going to go down by half every four years in the next 12 years, and then things are going to get tricky. 
Like, I feel like that analysis is pretty weak. What you are doing when you are making this claim is that you are baking so much equivalent ex- uh, speculation into the value of BTC. And this is the fundamental problem with BTC is it's secured by number go up. You At just said point, your system is breaks. secured by number go up. Our system is because it's actually a part of the sustainable economics of the chain where Bitcoin, 37 sats is all that's going to secure Bitcoin into the future. We have no well, idea what the Bitcoin years. price is going to be in the future. That's just in 100 and, years. Well, it's right. either going to so, yeah, be global money or we're not. We're trying to – so 37 sats, whatever, it's like uh, 2,000 sats. Let's move up like 50 nope. years. 2,000 sats. sats. I, I 100 w- years from now. It's the, that's so the, – the, the, it's not bragging rights to advertise how low you're paying out for your security. Well, I never said – Because, I said again, that, you're, you're baking in how much the thing is actually – exponentially, so, like, we're not even talking this about is, these. These are all, like, speculation. This is speculation, I mean, the, the, what are you talking about? This whole your thing ba- is your speculation. Chain on speculation. This whole thing is so – first and foremost, there's no speculation on how many Bitcoins are going to be or how what the block reward is going to be at that point. That is all known. See – What's the, what's your block reward going to be? Right, but you years? are speculating on the value of yeah, Bitcoin so going up. It's either and Bitcoin is global this is money. why the trajectory is really important. When you ask me what the blockchain value of Ethereum is going to be, it's I don't know, but I can tell you the trajectory. And the trajectory is the more valuable that the Ethereum block space becomes because of the more utility that's found on Ethereum, which that utility is created by the free market, is going to go up. Whereas Bitcoin, I can tell you it's going to go down. That's the whole point. Well, it's going down linearly. Yeah, it, it's going down. You want your security to go no, up you, over you, time, so you, you're down over time. security with BTC denominated block reward. I think block reward and fees are both going down in sat terms. If you look at the chart, that's what's happening. Okay, but both are exploding in buying power. This is, but this bakes into the security argument of Bitcoin about Look, what I'm you can get about, for I'm Bitcoin on the secondary market. Man. I'm talking about game theory. You're not thinking about game theory. Neither is, neither is Justin Drake, who knows so much about Bitcoin. All crypto is based off of game theory. Everyone's thinking about game theory. That's the whole point. But yet he misunderstands talk about L ones without talking about so like fundamentally. No, he just disagrees with you. He doesn't misunderstand you. He disagrees. Dude, his back of the napkin math doesn't even take into account time value of money, which is basic assumption. (laughs) It's just speculation. That that is actually how it works. He doesn't even use basic basic (laughs) math to to make his assumptions on what is it going to take to attack Bitcoin. Again, it doesn't even take into account game theory. Guess what China did? Shot itself in the foot, banned Bitcoin. And, oh, you were like, oh, man, Bitcoin and, uh, Bitcoin hash rate went down 50%. Well, guess what? All of that hash rate re- relocated across the globe. A lot of that hash rate is accounted for. And uh, now China does not have its stronghold on Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin's hash rate or difficulty adjusted within about two and a half weeks. And now we're back up, you know, back to smooth sailing. So the way I interpret that is that Bitcoin works. The incentives work. The game theory works. I'm very interested on how you interpret that. Yeah, I think that's just like a such a short term, like temporal. There, there's not an actually much signal to be pulled pulled out there. Like we are talking about the fundamental like constructions of these systems, not that like one country like banned it. But let's let's go down let's go down this road. 
China had a very large central uh, positioning of hash power, and then it banned it. And then that's good for distribution, right? Because this central power that had like significant amount of the hash power then banned it, and then that that hash power got diffused elsewhere, making Bitcoin more decentralized. Actually, I think there's a world where like that's actually an anomaly. Just the fact that like China decided to like, what if some like non-material like country banned Bitcoin mining? Like I don't know, some South Africa banned Bitcoin mining. Like not not that big of a deal. But what happens with when like more and more countries decide to ban Bitcoin mining, and then more and more countries decide to ban Bitcoin mining, and all of this hash power starts like fleeing all the countries that's banning it, and then going into countries that aren't banning it. And then all of a sudden, everything gets funneled into like these three countries that haven't banned Bitcoin yet, and like great, they're the ones that that have all the bitcoins. But the whole, but now you can't find it across the whole rest of the world. Like these are all just like weird, like geopolitical anomalies that, like, sure, we can talk about every single one. It doesn't really have anything to do with the actual fundamental like sustainability of the ecosystem itself. But also, that's an argument as to why it's really nice to not have an actual physical footprint for your blockchain in the real world. Well, I mean, again, Ethereum definitely has a physical footprint. Uh, so Ethereum infrastructure takes up a lot of energy. It's in server rooms. So uh, this idea that it doesn't have a physical footprint is comical. But yes, the consensus is, is not it, tied... Is this proof of stake or proof well, of no, work? The consensus is not tied to energy expenditure yes i get that but with the same with that being said there is physical footprint like there's literally servers on the internet sucking up power like that doesn't come out of nowhere yeah but this this the server you don't think that that can't be banned once we get to uh, proof of stake it's like a 99.9 percent reduction in energy consumption and so like i mean yeah like my when i charge my phone in it's also sucking up power but well, it's not talking, let, let me anything. let me tell you something, my friend. The, the other thing about Ethereum security is that security is defined by Ether, the asset, which doesn't live on a computer, which is fundamentally different than an ASIC, which is a computer. And so Ether can hop from computer to computer to computer. And so, yeah, it has a physical footprint, but that footprint is very fluid. It doesn't actually have a shape. Bitcoins, obviously, their footprint is extremely fluid as well. And I would say that there is a lot of evidence. Not when you have to pack up your miners and, and ship them across the world. That's not I fluid. I mean, it's not as fluid as something that's completely digital, but it's still fluid. Like, again, we saw real life examples of how fluid that it was. not fluid. Okay, so... It was not fluid. Okay, so what, what's the timeline? Uh, instantaneous. Okay. <laughs> okay, well... Look, we I, we could argue about this, but I feel like that gets besides the point because, like, one of your base assumptions, right, is that energy is something that is going to be cracked down on, right? And I would say, like, yeah, energy is going to get cracked down on, and we need some, and that is a bad thing. I think that that is led by false narratives. That's led by totalitarianism, and I think that we're living in a world right now where energy is being cracked down on, and that energy systems are being deconstructed and the grid is being centrally planned. And I think that this is where Bitcoin mining comes in and fixes a lot of issues. And so removing mining is not fixing problems. Like, yes, okay, it makes the 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 consensus based on stake so it doesn't use electricity. I don't think that that's necessarily solving a problem. And I mean, I would say that there's probably a lot of evidence to show that that's probably going to centralize the uh the control amongst existing holders so 
um, in terms of like actually solving real problems, I think that proof of work is by far necessary to solve the world's problems. We need proof of work to fix our energy infrastructure. We need proof of work to grid balance. Like the world is freaking crumbling. Like look at what is happening across the globe. Look at Europe. Look, tell me Europe is in a sustainable situation based on how that infrastructure is being centrally planned. And I can tell you how Bitcoin fixes this. This is another one of those things where Bitcoiners uh, tie in Bitcoin away from the actual sustainability of the chain to like these real, real world, like just things. These not, not anomalies, but context or context of the real world. And so you're saying that, like, yes, oh, this yeah, is the, where we talk about world, the real like, world, how, sir. I'm sorry that it's not all models yeah, the, and fairy tales. What you are telling me is that, oh, yes, Bitcoin in the future is going to be this economically sustainable thing, which is no, a it's narrative, which now, is a fairy man, tale. And my man, it's happening now. Bitcoin is being integrated into energy now. We just did a, pu we just did a publication on, uh, on Bitcoin Magazine by Compass Mining showing the Navajo Nation, which has been a second-class citizen and a second-class nation in America, the land of the free, this entire time where they have no energy infrastructure and no banking, and now they're mining Bitcoin, and Bitcoin is funding energy infrastructure that was not even used. So this is absolutely happening in real life, and it's happening in front of our eyes. It's transforming our energy infrastructure in front of our eyes, giving these people the ability to arbitrage an enormous amount. You can just look at how successful the public stocks are going to know that Bitcoin mining is an absolute revolution that is catching fire. So, I mean, I don't really know what you're looking at when you're like, hey, I'm going to jump over to proof of stake because mining bad. Like mining is absolutely something that is incredibly useful and has an enormous amount of utility for real world people that need energy and they need energy across the globe. And it's going to help people in Conga get energy and build out infrastructure and your proof of stake doesn't do shit for them. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> You, okay, so there's a significant amount of cherry picking that Bitcoiners do when they say about like, oh, this is where we're getting the energy from. Sure, some of the newer installations of Bitcoin miners perhaps are more green than the older installations green, of Bitcoin see, miners. This is you falling into this weird narrative. Like the, the narrative, like sustainable. No, what, what, what I you mean, sustainable is not essentially planned grid. We're not saying I say sustainable. I'm saying when the actual energy, the, the costs of the production of energy actually are lower than than the result that you can get from it. So like we can cut it cut out from the grid so long as you can produce energy at a cheaper rate than what you can sell it. That's sustainable, and Bitcoin mining like helps get that done. The thing is like the, again, there's a significant amount of cherry picking as to what Bitcoiners do when they talk about like where the actual energy for this this Bitcoin uh, mining. Uh, input actually comes from and, and again we actually should be talking about we should because of, you're ignoring all the, the non-bitcoin miners that aren't doing all of this stuff that are just doing all the things that everyone is very specifically fearful that they're Wait, doing what and again what we are what we like, should mean, actually be talking on about coal? mining on energy consumption if you consume energy you actually have to justify that for uh, its absolutely not. I, right? I think that that is absolutely not true. And I think that's a false narrative that is going to lead people to poverty. I think we move forward by creating more abundant energy, not being energy police. 
the, the problem with Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is secured by proof of work. Which Th- that's is not the problem. That is so like, yes, the we can actually ma- that is the evolution. It's you can't remove it. Bitcoin and have the evolution. just incentivizes. Bitcoin can't. You can't take credit for Bitcoin generating energy if it's generating energy, and then it also just consumes it all. Like that's you don't actually are adding anything to the world. Like you're just see, like oh, so Bitcoin. We, we made energy true. cheaper, Bit- but then but then we ate it. See, this is where this is where it's not. You you are misinterpreting what is happening. So what Bitcoin is is Bitcoin is energy consumption that's not geographically bound. So that is what's useful. And I'm sorry to to like startle you, but a shipping container with ASICs is extremely fucking portable. Like moving something in six months across the globe, infrastructure across the globe is extremely fucking impressive. If you actually know what's happening in these conditions, in a global lockdown, in a global pandemic, the Bitcoin network pulled all of its, with its game theory, pulled all of those ASICs out of China, relocated across the globe, across language barriers, across all of the, every single issue that could have arose. It did that in six months. So what Bitcoin is, is energy demand across the globe, no matter what. So, hey, guess what? You're in the Congo. No one wants to fucking buy your waterfall energy. Okay, well, if you can get Bitcoin miners out there, all of a sudden you can monetize that. So what's your proof of stake going to do for that person? Because that's a real fucking problem that Bitcoin fixes for that person. And it's like, that's not to be shrugged away. That's real. Like they, they have an issue. Bitcoin fixes this. You're trying to like latch on Bitcoin and this energy production to like, you know, this like the, to the people of the world and like trying to like latch on the narrative onto this thing. Were, were you saying like, oh, it takes Bitcoin six months to move all of its like security from one part of the world to another? Like, in a pandemic. And then you say, you, you say, sure, in a global, whatever. Like, and then you say like, oh yeah, people Bitcoin can't move isn't borders, actually man. Geo- and Bitcoin isn't geographically constrained because you can move these things around. Like what Bitcoin can do in six months, Ether can do in one block. You can move Ether directly across the world to a different computer and not actually have... You say Bitcoin doesn't have a geographic footprint. Of course it has a geographic footprint. That's what it is. And so, yeah, you can... You can move that geographic footprint, like you can move it like a trailer. The home, energy demand, but has that no still has sig- You still have economic cost to that to that movement of the thing. And it, Bitcoin is only secured two thirds electricity by one third hardware. You can't ignore the hardware aspect of this. Where Ether, you Bitcoin absolutely has a geographic footprint. Ether does not have a geographic footprint. That's what proof of stake is. And so Ether can move from one tiny laptop from one corner of the world instantaneously across to the other side of the internet without any of these David, like, these costs are of actually having to sell your these bitcoins. These are strawmans. There no. is a geographic <laughs> footprint for both. They are literal physical computer networks and they're distributed across the globe. And look, if Bitcoin's you, if energy you, consumption, this... <laughs> Bitcoin's energy demand has no geographic location. It is geographically agnostic. That is why it brings energy online. You need the proof of work function to bring energy online. Okay, so just because your consensus mechanism is done by coins, which I understand are easier to transfer than hardware, that does not mean that Ether does not have a geographic footprint because the network is physical hardware. And you have to understand that physical hardware can be attacked. It is attached to the energy grid. And you are there's a lot of other assumptions that are baked into actually putting that thing online. 
if if you if you are a government and you have a fighter plane with a bomb on it, you can blow up all of the ASICs of a Bitcoin miner with a push of a button. Where if you take a an Ethereum validating computer and throw it out the window, you can just move the ether. So yes, at all times, ether has a geographic footprint, but the current like state of the, the world Ethereum with network. regards to Ethereum's geographic, yeah, the Ethereum network, the current state of the world does not actually commit to a future state of the world about the f- footprint of Ethereum. And so like, you, you, you can, how can you not say that like, Bic- like Ethereum doesn't have a geographic footprint when there are literal physical computers and then there is Ether the asset and Ether the asset isn't tied to any computer, whereas Bitcoin's well, hardware it's all, it's actually all the is. I get, I get how blockchains work. Yes, right. So we all have a geographic footprint. Well, the but keys Ethereum theoretically actually... have a geographic footprint, even though they're easy to, I guess, transfer. Hey, let's let's move let's move past I mean, this. My, my keys are on paper, not on a computer. Well, let, let's let's move this conversation over because um, I feel like we're just kind of like uh, go, we're just jawing at each other now. Coming to a head. Yeah, let's let's yeah. talk about like the bull market because that's what we promised to the people. Uh, we want to talk about bull market dynamics for ETH for BTC. Uh, maybe for Shabe, um, you know, I, I have some stuff oh, prepped God. here. So I guess, like, what are your thoughts here? I feel like the bull market has been treating you quite well. The, the whole uh, Dogecoin and Dogecoin fork derivative phenomenon is something that is uh, fun to watch. But if we really want to get into, like, meaty conversations, it's really the whole, like, Ethereum versus Solana debate that's going on right now oh, uh, because of a bunch of new people. No, no one wants but, to Yeah, a bunch Solana. of new people. Or do or do yeah they, or yeah. Do well, they? I mean, Maybe, I think okay, it's a final demo. Uh, tell me, tell me, tell me about the debate. Well, I mean, it's the same debate about EOS in in 2017, right? Like a bull market comes, a bunch of people want to do like crypto stuff and transact with their stuff and have like fun crypto times. Uh, then like the the actually decentralized blockchains become congested because they've constrained their block space, and so all of that flows over to some sort of and turns into some sort of demand for some alternative L1. A bunch of VCs make a bunch of money trying to spin up a bunch of L1s. Like last season, it was like EOS and and I can't remember all the other ones that died. This season, it's like Avalanche and and oh yeah, Tron was one of them. Tron's still around, not actually gaining any, tra- any traction. Hey, they got they got uh, tethered. Yeah, Avalanche and Tether Tron or uh, Tether on Tron. You gotta give them that. Yeah, it's just it's just for payments though, right? I mean, yeah, real people use that shit to live. Sure. Sure. But yeah, so, so last, last bull market, it was EOS. This bull market, Solana. Uh, all these people that are transacting on Solana are uh, like not appreciating the long-term sustainability of chains and not understanding that when you have a blockchain that advocates for cheap block space, the long-term, long-term destination of that chain is to become more and more centralized. Um, but uh, What if they advocate to, for cheap uh, block space and then pivot to expensive block space? Right. And so if they do that, then they just actually turn into Ethereum, right? So if you, you're just following in Ethereum's Whoa. footsteps and like, sure, there's, there's this like this, uh, like model in business apparently called like penetrative pricing, right? Like if you, if you want to disrupt your competition, you come in with a product, you purposely dampen the price so that people buy yours instead. And then later you, once you establish some sort of market dominance, then you start raising the price. Well, if you start doing that, well, then you, then you actually start constraining the block space, which is how you become sustainable as a blockchain, 
and then you force fees. And then everyone that's on Solana is like, well, fuck, I'm here because I wanted no fees. And now there's all the fees. Like, where did all these fees come from? Uh, and then all of a sudden, like, you turn into the thing that you were trying to disrupt. And we've seen this all before. It's like it's like when Bitcoin had all of its hard forks in like 2013 to 2017. I don't know if it's exactly like that, but uh, I I feel like none of those had a chance. I don't know. Does uh, this is this is where it's tough for me? Is like does Ethereum have a moat? Is uh, is is where uh, where I'm conflicted? Yeah, people have been wondering about that forever. Uh, Ethereum's moat is its developers. Uh, the big threat to Ethereum out of Solana is that there's a significant portion of the world that like doesn't care about decentralization, which is actually like kind of a good bet. Um, but again, that's why these technical arguments about these blockchains are like so so important because like Solana can capture a lot of people in the world that don't care about decentralization, but that actually doesn't fix Solana's unsustainability problems, right? Like still at the why? end of the day, they're going to have to deal with state uh, state bloat. They can just fork that away because yeah, okay. they're centralized. Who cares? Yeah. Okay. That's actually, that's a pretty good point. That's a pretty good point. Um, you also have to deal with the government issues, right? So it's yes. centralized and you keep <laughs> on working things away. Like the, the, the government's going to come and say, Hey, lo- hello, Mr. Mr. Anatoly. Like, what's up? still around um, though. I don't know, man. Yeah. Like, hey, I mean, you but, can just, I mean, like these governments ain't that competent these days. It's pretty corrupt too. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're con- they're incompetent in, doing the things that we want them to, but they can be competent in enforcing the, the sh- incompetent laws that they put in place. So yeah, they're incompetent at making, at making good laws, but they still can be competent in enforcing, enforcing the bad laws that they make. I can definitely, I, I can like definitely that's a agree that they take. make bad laws. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyways, so yeah, Re- repeat history rhymes. Um, there's like this big Solcon going on right now. Somebody sent me a bunch of notes from Solcon. It's like, oh, here's like the vibes uh, of Solcon right now. And like, oh, let, oh yeah, I have to go to my computer so I can read this because like two of them were just absolutely like fucking perfect. Right. Uh, one of them was um, that uh, the narrative of Solana people is that Ethereum people got really, really rich and therefore are like lazy and, and just like like resting on their laurels now. Which is hilarious because of the concentration of Solana people, Solana people got way more richer, way faster than Ethereum people. And it's way more of a percentage of overall Solana people. And so it's just a, a fantastic narrative on their part, but like fundamentally just like... I think incorrect. everything is fractal, uh, so it, it checks out to me. Yeah, and then yeah, that's exactly right. And then let's see, what's the other thing that they said? Uh, hold on, let me pull up the, uh, the message. The other thing that they said was... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, hold on, where is it? Uh, top-down approach. Top-down approach. Oh, yeah. Uh, while most ETH people dismiss Solana, I have personally come to accept that the strong set of stakeholders, that the strong set of stakeholders of Solana are trying to force a top-down adoption in narrative of Solana will be very, very powerful. So this is just like the, the, like the Kyle Samanis of the world and like all the people that got rich off Solana just like injecting money into it. And you actually actually see this on crypto Twitter these days. There's all, it's just like the chain link bots and all the other bots that we've seen. XRP dots, like uh, ADA bots. It's easy to call now there's all these people that are really just a bunch of uh, fervent gamblers. Yeah, but you can, you can also, you can, you can tell because they all started within like the last like two weeks or so. And like, sure. Maybe there's like this mob mentality, 
but like when you have that corroborated by somebody that's at Solana talking to the Solana people at, at Solana, the Solana convention talking to the Solana people and they're saying like, oh yeah, like we're going to like do that. We're, we were trying to instill this like top down narrative. Like, yeah, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, like, it's pretty much the like, XRP model. Like, it looks like the SEC is going exactly to shit the bed, and XRP or Ripple will, right. will win and prove that if you print enough money fast enough and legitimize it quickly enough, that you can hire the right lawyers and take down the corrupt government. And uh, I think that that bodes well for Bitcoin. The, I don't know if that was well uh, for Ethereum because then that probably means that Solana I, yeah, will be okay. I know, I, I know, I know you think it bodes I mean, well probably for, most, for Bitcoin. It probably, it to, probably bodes well for Ethereum too because a lot of people who you know probably printed things that might be illegal are going to get away with it and get really rich and get a lot of hard money with that. Yeah, that, that's actually a complete difference between Ethereum and Solana. Too much to it, Bitcoiners' lack of narrative. So I have a question um, for you. I have a question for you. Sure. So, and just honest take here. If if there's a dog coin, like a really cute, good marketed dog coin that's created on Solana, do you think that that will moon? Oh, probably. Is, is that like almost 100% bet or, or like how, how, oh, how yeah, do you probably. analyze that situation given the, the, the macro uh, situation that we're in? What do you mean the macro situation that we're in? We, we're in a Bitcoin bull market, and we also live in clown world. So I feel like this is a very specific macro situation. Yeah, Bitcoiners love to, like, co-opt the bull market and say it's theirs. It's not. That's not how it works. Yeah, it's um, not a four-year cycle that revolves around the halving. Yeah, it's not. That's right. Um, so, yeah, if this, if this, like, doggy food coin... Or no, yeah, Doggy Coin was on Solana and it pumped. Like, yeah, it makes total sense that it would pump. That's that's where all the traders and speculators and everyone that's going to Solana is like of the Moon Boy culture, right? Like trying to moon, trying to catch my moon. Uh, and so, like, it makes sense to put a moon bag on Solana. Like, that's product market fit. All right. If someone makes that, keeping an eye out. I. I I can't. I 100% think there's already like a hundred dog coins on Solana. Okay. I would be so. I mean, I, obviously, I haven't spent too much time looking into it. No, neither have I. But just like knowing the culture and knowing knowing how like DGen side of crypto works, like that's definitely it's definitely on the menu. So, well, I mean, let's talk about about bull markets. So, you know, everyone knows me, Bitcoiner, run Bitcoin Magazine. You know, I, I would hope to not blaspheme myself, but. Like, how, how do you go about, you know, we're in a bull market. How do you go about your informational advantage when you're in a position like this? Like, you know, I would never advocating for gambling your sats. And, you know, maybe anything that you invest in a shitcoin is gambling your sats because that's the opportunity cost of sats. But, like, you know, you can, you can, you can pretty much, if you've been around, you can, you can understand what the, the average newcomer will do. And I think you could pretty easily forecast that. So, kind of curious what your take is on that i mean i know that you're not afraid to dabble in shit coins i mean i'm not i'm not much of a trader um i don't appreciate the branding of somebody that like dabbles in in this like you know the the contillion effect that, that you're projecting there's other traders out there who's like try to, to play like these these uh like the memory of markets like if this is this this is that uh, I, I'm kind of a guy that is interested in, uh, owning a part, uh, all the pieces of the shares of the public good system that is Ethereum. 
that, that is what I like. There are things that I care about that I want to protect. One of these things that is recently in news is ENS. And so, yes, I got an ENS airdrop. Uh, well, that thing is doing things, that thing is doing things right now. And we, what, what do you mean by law? What do you mean by well, law? Well, I mean, like, so before, I'm just going to pre-hold judgment. Explain to me the ENS mm-hmm. airdrop. Just explain the token, the whole thing. And then, and then I will, uh, I'll tell you what I think. Sure. Sure. So we had Brantley Milligan on POV Corrupt podcast sometime in, in 2019. Uh, one of the big uh, things that we asked him about is uh, the funds for when somebody purchases an ENS name. Uh, and so in order, the reason why you have to actually purchase an ENS name instead of just like, you know, claiming the one that you want, like I have David Hoffman.eth, I had to pay for that. The reason why you have to pay for that is because they're scarce. And so like if all ENS names were free, well, then, like, one person can claim every single name, and all of a sudden that system for naming things is useless. So we actually need to have some sort of anti-civil mechanism so that we can actually sustainably manage the resources of this network. Uh, so the ENS team had to actually sell these ENS names for Ether, which, made the, which gave them a treasury. Uh, I can't remember what it was when we talked to Brantley Milligan at the time, but it was something like it was in the low one single-digit million dollars, like something like one to ten million dollars. Um, and so we asked him, "What, Brantley, what is you going to do with that, that all of that treasury? And he was like, I, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do with it. Uh, it's, we're, we're just going to put it here, and then we're going to like save it for later. Once we figure out how to do it, well, how to, to deal with it, we'll deal with it. But it was actually very much an unintentional byproduct to manage the economic uh, resources of the system. And always in the ENS uh, like uh, vibe in the, in the in the vision, the North Star of ENS is to figure out how to make this a community managed protocol. Then the DAO revolution comes along, and you can people have figured out that they can actually uh, spread out control over these systems to a very large number of people using tokens, uh, and so using the concept of retroactive airdrops, where you f- uh, surgically find all the people that have used your system in the past. You can allocate them a certain balance of tokens proportional to how much they've engaged with the system in ways that you've de- de- deemed most aligned to the system. And then you can uh, reallocate tokens to them. And that's what happened with ENS. So if you had an ENS name, you got a certain balance of tokens. We can go into the parameters about like how some people got more tokens than others if you want to uh, unpack that. But I generally thought it was a pretty, pretty fair distribution. If you owned an ENS name for longer, you got more tokens. If it was for shorter, you got less tokens uh, and a few other parameters like that. And now there are these token holders that have actually, uh, the way that the governance model works is there's delegates, much like a representative democracy. No one wants to do all this voting and understanding what's going on themselves. So people delegate their vote to a specific, a specific delegate. You can move your, your, you can move your vote wherever you want to. Um, but now these delegates are responsible for acknowledging the wills of the token holders to guide the management of this ENS system. So the the Ethereum name service system can actually be a, a long-term sustainable public good for the namespace around Ethereum and everything that it's connected to. It's a pretty good pitch. That's a pretty good skeptical response. I mean, there's a lot of things about it that are, like, really clean, right? So uh, you had an ecosystem, you had something that people were buying, like, you kind of had, like, a map of users, like, you know, probably Ethereum insiders were heavy on the users, like, just realistically, but... It's not I mean, no, but, It's not Ethereum insiders, it's people that used ENS, yeah, it's specifically I mean, the people that they care about. 
I agree. Users. They gave it to users based on them being there, right? I'm just also categorizing a lot of those users as Ethereum insiders who know the founder. You always do that. Oh, it's the Cantillon insiders. It's It's the insiders. It's it's not. It's just the people. Okay. So, yeah, there's a time period in which they're distributed. That distribution is locked in stone at this time period. And then it's proof of stake. They have act. They have. Uh, they have control of this uh, of this treasury now, as well as the system. Like you know, there's a bad way to paint it, and there's a good way to paint it. Um, you know, I think ultimately, like, does it turn into a cabal, or does it maintain as something that is a true public good? We'll see. Like you know, we've seen. I would say, like, the current system we have right now is quote unquote like the traditional system we have, the finance system, democracy in the U.S. Like that resembles proof of stake to some degree, where they have you know, some sort of treasury that they manage and specific people with the the right lineage and are there at the right time, you know, they are connected to it. And uh, we'll see, like, we'll see, we'll see how, how, like, you know, talking about Bitcoin lasting for 100 years, like, we'll see, we'll see if these things last 100 years and if they can maintain. Right. So we could extrapolate around like previous models that we've seen, especially as it comes to like shareholder equity in the Web2 market markets and the, the equity markets where actually in like startups, distributing equity was actually a really good incentive to actually figuring out how to uh, bootstrap companies, right? Like startup companies paid people in equity in, instead of instead of cash startups are not to public start goods bootstrapping though. the incentives. And like startups that turn into public right. goods and this, kind of turned evil. Like Facebook or Meta, right? And this is the yeah, and that's a great that's a great failure of Alphabet. the whole Web two equity model. And and in our in our podcast with Chris Dixon, Chris Dixon, he said a great line, which is the whole equity model of networks from Web two networks like Facebook, Twitter, uh, you know, Spotify, whatever. The the equity model doesn't actually work with the network model. And now that we have tokens, we actually have the capital asset that fundamentally aligns with the network watt model. And the difference between this is like with Uber, you have all these very disgruntled drivers that don't like their company and they're just being paid cash. And then the classic example of the Web3 model is like, oh, well, what if we had like an Uber that like in addition to paying cash also paid you the equity of the company? Now we have these things in the Web3 world where they actually don't pay them in cash. They only pay them in equity. And every single user always gets the equity. And so the equity of ENS got distributed to over 170, uh, 137,000 people on day one. Like this is a fundamental paradigm shift with what it means to spread capital and share capital amongst the users who are now the shareholders. And like, I know this, oh, we're going we're gonna to see how, how good this line lands. But this is literally this, the worker seizing the means of production. This is literally what that is. is. You are a user and you're contributing value to the system. You also receive value back from the system. And that what makes a, an economically sustainable system. And so like, not only do we have like free market incentives and capitalistic incentives, like injecting energy into the ENS system, but we have like the socialistic incentives of like, oh yeah, we can actually make sure that this, this, this uh, gets distributed and governance over these things is determined by the people that are actually using the thing. And it's a perfect marriage of incentives, which is how you've come to find like long-term sustainable models in the first place. Well, using the thing at a certain point, like I think the distribution mechanism is really important too. So uh, it was kind of a snap, like, you know, I feel like the experiments around distribution are are still quite early. Although, uh, although I do not discount that uh, there are novel things that are kind of happening here with you know having a, you know having some sort of like cryptographic blockchain 
uh, user set, right? That you can like uh, airdrop stuff to or whatever. Like that is, you know, those features are not ending. And uh, I don't think that that's something that is outside of Bitcoin, but it's definitely something that's not going away either. Have you gotten have you gotten an airdrop on Bitcoin recently? <laughs> well, it's not something that people do a lot because the cancel on uh, culture is not really an, on Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. Okay. But if there's think of you, I think Bitcoiners think of like cancel on culture as like this one single like money spigot, right? This one central point of money. The, the cancel on that you're referring to on Ethereum is more like fireworks. They're going off randomly in all different places all at once at no one central spot. So, like, the whole Cantillon word is a terrible, terribly descriptive word. It doesn't actually describe the things. It's just the same, same thing that, like, Ethereum people have been frustrated about Bitcoiners about the end of time is always putting this negative, like, unjustified branding upon the economics of Ethereum. Yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, I think part of that is, like, justifying why inflation is not a big part of of Bitcoin and why Bitcoin users don't uh, or Bitcoin holders don't necessarily um, benefit from token inflation directly. I think they do in terms of like Bitcoin captures some of that price and it it blows up Bitcoin's price a little bit. Um, So part of it is that Um, another side of it is that like, okay, yes, you can navigate the technical and socioeconomic things within Ethereum to fairly become an Ethereum insider and benefit from the Cantillon opportunities that are there. And that's completely fine. But that doesn't mean that if those systems get put into place and are solidified, that that won't devolve into a toxic situation for their users long term. So I think that is where the hostility is, is like, yeah, like this is a fair capitalistic system. But it might just be implementing a tech oligopoly of who is an Ethereum user in the early days. This is the same criticism that Ethereum people have about Bitcoin. But, but, the, but the difference the, with Bitcoin we're, we're, is that the first 50% of coins were distributed in the first like three and a half years. And then the, that, without a price even being there. And then the next four years, the next 25% of coins were distributed and it was still like nothing. Right. So like it's pretty clear. Right. To show so that those are the a, new insiders now. But th- it's not proof of stake. Those insiders have no power over the system. It, it doesn't matter. No, proof of stake it's, does matter. They because still, the they still capture all the value. The coins. No, I, I, I disagree. I just disagree that I think that the, the proof of stake nature matters. It makes distribution matter a lot more. So the, the returns, there was a, uh, an R, a, a I don't, I don't know how deep the, the research went, but there was a, a research report that somebody put out this week where it compared the returns on investment on proof of work and proof of stake. And the whole, like, scale, economies of scale and return on proof of, work, on proof of work investment scales up way more than proof of stake. And the whole point about proof of stake is that you actually capture less and less wealth over time than you do in proof of work versus the miners. And yes, there is the difference where the staking asset actually has like control over the consensus of the system, but it really doesn't matter. There's not, it's not actually that much more power. It's actually a very marginal difference. Like having a single person running a, a, like their own nodes doesn't actually result in them ability to sway the chain. Oh, that's where the, that's, where the, social, way more that's important where the social attack the vectors come into play. And that's why having subjective, uh, 
aspects of consensus matters? I'm not ready to go into that. <laughs> yeah, too, no, I think we're, we're, already, we're already pretty deep, and we've definitely gotten pretty cosmic. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, like, before we close this one out, what's, like, one thing that you're looking at going into, uh, you know, what could be the peak of, of a bull market? Like, what are you, what's, your, like, your, uh, what's your focus here? I, I don't think that we're going to, like, peak – um, I think it's going to be a sustainable slow rise, uh, slow in crypto relative to crypto terms, uh, sustainable slow rise for a really long time. Maybe we have some blow off top like much later, but I think I think we are not riding like the cycle super cycle, the the charting super cycle. But I think we're uh, riding the uh, what Anthony Sedano calls the adoption super cycle. And so what what I'm particularly looking at is gaming as like this next adoption super cycle. Uh, where that that is the next the next like frontier and it makes sense to me right so like the way that ethereum has really progressed is like first there was DeFi, we made this DeFi thing and then once DeFi was pretty well built out we started making nfts and then we had the nfts transacting on top of the DeFi layer and really what do you need to make gaming well you need a combination of DeFi, nfts and erc20 tokens and then all of a sudden you can have the gaming layer on top of all that and I mean, we already we already know that this is coming more or less. Like Axie Infinity kind of was the shot across the bow for every single person that was interested in gaming to just start shoveling money into gaming startups. Uh, and so, like Alluvium is about to come online. There's like a number of other games that are that are being built behind the scenes. And each one of these games has their own like native GDP. And so, like the, the whole like we're going to take the emerging markets of like you know Asia and Africa all the desire to invest in emerging markets is going to be like redirected into like gaming emerging markets. Gaming is the next emerging markets. You already <laughs> see like this uh, SLP token of uh, Axie Infinity being used as a medium of exchange in, in, around the Philippines. And that's just like the first game that crypto is ever really able to make. Uh, and so like the, the great, the next great economies of the world are going to be gaming economies. And that's going to happen like in the next like two to three years. Then nothing sounds more clown world than what you just described. But I guess... Well, we actually call it the, the metaverse, and it's a ton of fun. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I feel like the metaverse is kind of part of, like, the dystopian reality that is being thrust upon us right now. And I just, like, I feel like Ethereum is leading into that really hard, and Ethereum makes a lot of sense to uh, the fiat world mindset. And uh, Bitcoin is like a back-to-earth movement. Where, you know, we say, fuck that shit, we're going back to nature, and uh, we're going to strip, you know, all value away from bullshit, keep it in a sound money, and and make decisions based on a clean and uh, foreseeable economic uh, system. So I I just feel like all base assumptions, like, just completely change, and, like, going into the metaverse is, like, I mean, I, I get why it's probably bullish, like, you're right. Like, you're not wrong about anything you said. I just think that you're wrong about Bitcoin. And that's where, like, I think, you know, in the long term, like, that stuff's going to get stomped out. Well, if there's a population of the world that wants to go, as you said, back to, like, previous times where Bitcoin, where, like, there, there were good times or back in the good old days, more power to them. But, you know, just want to live in time nature. goes forward. No, li- li- we're going live forward. in reality. Maybe focus on uh, on the physical world. Maybe focus on getting us to space yes, instead of in, in a, depriving, in a world that keeps on going more of depriving and more third world of 
funding so that way we uh, funnel it into the the digital. You're not depriving the them of funding. Space. You're injecting them with funding. It's the exact opposite. Maybe, maybe if the Cantillon insiders believes that that is where the the uh, the funds that they printed should be allocated. Okay. Well, <laughs> this is this is like the the fourth time that you've used this Cantillon insider uh, branding. I mean, I, I, that's what it is, man. But I mean, we don't we don't have to bang on it too much. It's been a good rip, Misty, man. I think I'm uh, going to see you in person pretty soon. Hopefully we do one of these before then. Yeah, should we, just, should we do another live one uh, while we, right before we go skiing in, in Washington? I mean, maybe. We'll see. We'll see. This one was recorded, so it'll be on the podcast, so y'all can uh, go look up POV Crypto and, uh, and catch it. We'll try to get it up in a timely manner. Peace, everyone. Should we let, do people want to come on stage? What happens next on these oh, things? Oh, man. Well, I promised uh, that I was going to go do dinner at 7.30, so we could we could let people up for uh, for 12 minutes if we want. Or we could just rug them. Yeah, no, I, I prefer that. You want to rug them? All right, we're going to rug them. I mean, I never promised anything, so there's no rug, guys. <laughs> I never promised anything. All right, no, let's rug All right, them. see ya. Goodbye, Peace. everyone. Thanks for listening. Will you?